Welcome to the Dialogue by Wirepoints, connecting the dots between our economy, government, and people. And now your hosts, Ted Dabrowski and Mark Glennon. Mark Glennon here from Wirepoints. Welcome to the Dialogue. I'm here with my colleague, Ted Dabrowski. We are going to update you today on some very significant developments in the COVID world and how they pertain to the governmental response here in Illinois and across the nation. Uh, some things have gotten much more contentious on basic issues, and in other ways, the ground has changed because even some of the, the dissident experts have uh, come into agreement on, on uh, uh, so, some fundamental premises with the establishment that kind of changes the target. So we're going to go run through these key developments. If you've been following these clo things closely, you'd have read about them. But for certainly for the average person that doesn't have the time to follow these things, I think they're mostly unaware of them. And in fact, as you'll see, I think even a lot of commentators that get a national platform are behind the times and what's going on. Um, first, let's uh, turn to some of the mitigation efforts that have been in place for children. This is a topic where we have an opinion. Um, and by the way, many of these things are mad are matters of opinion. Experts differ. Uh, scientists have different opinions. We generally don't challenge the medical views of experts, but where there's a decision that has to be made and individual choice is involved, we do express our opinions. One is on uh, the burden that children have had to take in the mitigation efforts that we've placed on society. And a major new study has come out from Brown University. Ted Dabrowski, take it away and tell us uh, what that study says, because it's pretty consistent with things we've been complaining about, I'd say. Well, you know, it's you're right. It's the thing that the parents have been worried about the most is, uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot over the last year and something. And you know, our big concern has been what what are the schools doing? What are the school districts doing? What are governments doing to to, uh, you know, protect, protect the public, protect kids. But at the same time, you know, what are the costs of those, of those protections and, and, and are those protections even, uh, legitimate? Do we really know if they are protections? So, uh, you're right. You mentioned this Brown study, but one, one thing I want to do, Mark, before, before I discuss this is, you know, I, and I think you do the same. I, I'm very cautious of, of new research that comes out from, let's call it from both sides of the aisle, if I can say it that way, because there's a lot of stuff that comes out and, and, uh, you know, there's a lot that you know has to be peer reviewed, hasn't been peer reviewed yet, and so you know we're cautious about both sides. You know that said, that said, we have some some fundamental things that you and I look at. You know, we're data centric, we're skeptic, we're, we're skeptical about what comes out, so we're we're pretty we're pretty careful. Um, and of course, we use our own data. You know, the data that comes out of Illinois to to kind of help us uh, reach some conclusions. But you know, this this new study, you know, there's been a lot of concerns about whether young kids in particular. Um, you know, being masked, you know, is that working? Are the, you know, keeping kids out of school for as long as we did, um, you know, what kind of impact did that have? Uh, online learning, you know, did that hurt? And and what this study did, you know, these guys went and, and, and did some assessments of, of a lot of kids, you know, prior to the lockdown and then after the lockdown, and they followed some kids, um, you know, throughout the period, they followed some young kids who were, who were you know, born, uh, in 2018, 2019, and so they were followed into the pandemic. So, um, you know, of course, I, it, it's it's one study, but this study has gotten a lot of attention. And bottom line is, it found that there's a a 23% drop in scores measuring kids' intelligence quotients. 
uh, since the start of the pandemic. And you know, one of the things they found are, are dips in the in, uh, in in children's ability to communicate both verbally and through subtle facial cues. And uh, you know, we talked a lot about that in the past. And you know, I'm certainly one of those people that I'm, I'm very visual. I, I look for cues. I try to understand what I look at people's faces. And uh, you know, when you're a three-year-old, you know, that's a lot of what you're learning. You know, what are your what what are your what's the feedback you're getting from other kids you're playing with or fighting with? Uh, you know, how does your teacher look at you when you do something? Uh, when you lose all that, um, you know, you really can't learn. And, and that's that's the scary part is that we've done this to to you know, millions of, of children. I, you know, I don't know if there's a billion children, but you know, millions or hundreds of millions of children throughout the world. And, you know, the results coming out of this study are, hey, um, you know, you know, a lot of these fine motor visual reception type things, they matter a lot in your IQ. And when you block them, watch out. And the, the restrictions on children, of course, are, aren't really intended to protect the kids because we know that the risk level to them is truly minimal, akin to ordinary flu rates. It's uh, intended to stop the spread of the virus to people who are truly at risk. And so this, to me, makes it a topic where you cannot and should not defer entirely to the experts. I mean, on this study that, that you just cited, maybe there's a different study that quantifies the harm differently. Maybe it's higher or lower. Uh, but my personal perspective on this is that wh whomever we're going to ask to sacrifice to control the spread of the virus should not be children. Uh, they've borne enough. And you know, there's other methods to mitigate the spread of the disease. I say focus on those that, th that work not on kids. You know, I, I'm in a high risk. You know, theoretically, I'm one of the people that these restrictions on kids is supposed to protect between age and respiratory issues, asthma, and some related complications. I'm in a high risk group. So if somebody asks me, I want kids to wear masks, take vaccines, make other sacrifices to protect people like me, no way. I don't want them doing anything on my behalf. That's my personal view. Well, Mark, and I've seen you also protect yourself. You've been, you know, over over the course of it, you know, when, when things were scarier, let's say, uh, you were smarter. I mean, you you if you have underlying conditions, you have to protect yourself. Uh, and I think that kind of comes back down to the whole thing, where, you know, the, the numbers prove it. And that's something we know uh, to the extent that we trust death numbers and we trust case numbers. And there's always questions about that. But if you look at it nationally or internationally, uh, you're talking about a thousand times risk factor between an elderly person and a young person. Uh, and if not more, once you start including comorbidities. So, so you're absolutely right. You know, I, th I think in, in too many cases, we've sacrificed kids in theory to protect other people. And, you know, of course, and then you bring in the whole, how much do kids transmit the disease to begin with? You know, if we think we're protecting the elderly, um, that only makes sense if the kids are actually big transmitters, but uh, that's never been really proven, especially young kids. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of questions out there, but certainly there's not enough evidence, you know, definitive evidence to, to let's say, quote, punish the children uh, to, to protect everybody else. And, and there's certainly no evidence to say that kids need to be protected because, uh, you know, they've been, they've been uh, thankfully, thankfully resilient to, to, the, to COVID. Yeah, let's move along to uh, the effectiveness of masks because there's some, been some developments here. This is one where we've simply put up both sides. There are, uh, you know, very contentious opinions on both sides, both among the scientists 
and and studies that uh, purport to measure mask efficacy, uh, we've simply put them both up and haven't expressed strong opinions. Uh, but one really got my attention that I certainly criticized when I saw it on our our website, wirepoints.org, and that is uh, Rachel Walensky, the head of the Centers for Disease Control, said that masks are 80% effective. Now, I'm sorry, but that's just preposterous. I, I've, I've looked for all the studies on this. We've tried to compile them. I've never seen anything substantiating anything close to that. And indeed, the scientific community, uh, much of it jumped on her for said, uh, saying that. And some called her an outright liar on that. Um, Ted, you know, tell us what your take is on the studies. I mean, I've, uh, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and share mine first. I've, uh, I've thought that the best study so far was this huge study in Bangladesh, which is had 300,000 people in it with control groups and all the rest. Uh, they found no effectiveness for cloth masks which is no surprise that I didn't there's been any evidence for the effect of those of the cloth masks that most people wear, but about 11% reduction in uh, spread of the disease in the in the groups that that wore higher quality masks, which they didn't define terribly well. And 11% is meaningful. And that that's kind of been my sense. There's probably some value in masks if you wear high quality masks. Um, Again, my opinion doesn't matter. You have to sort through the, the opinions, pro and con, the different studies. Ted, do you have any uh, different view on this? You know, I, I don't I don't have a different view. And I, you know, I I have to tell you that I've been confused by all the stuff I've read on masks. Um, there, there's too much on both sides. And, 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 you know, sometimes both sides are pretty adamant. Uh, I, I've 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 been of the, you know, of the view that outside, you know, it's it's not needed. Uh, but there's times, you know, where, where I found myself in, in, a, in a crowded place and I said, what the heck, I'll put on my mask. I don't know if it works or not. I'm, I'm skeptical. Uh, but, you know, but then again, when I get around my mom, you know, and I, I mentioned this before, you know, she's 81, almost 82, um, you know, and, and before she was vaccinated, I definitely had a mask on. Not, not, not because I necessarily believed it, but, you know, I said that there's, a, there's a certain risk or turn that I'm willing to accept, uh, you know, when I'm around my mother. So, um, yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot to, to add other than I think, you know, there's enough enough stuff out there where people kind of yeah, make their own decisions. Um, I certainly don't criticize people that wear masks in a crowded place. Um, I, I find it interesting when people wear masks outside when they're you know, sometimes even by themselves. But um, I try not to pass too much judgment because it is a pretty, you know, scary moment. Yeah. And, and stores that uh, require you to wear masks. You know, if the guy who owns the stores makes the rules, I'm happy to put on a mask, uh, you know, when that's necessary and or when when, the, when they want me to. to and yeah. So and, that, and Mark, that's, it's, it's interesting. But it's interesting. I'm seeing, and I was saying this on the radio the other day. I'm seeing more and more places where people aren't aren't wearing the masks. The rule the rule is starting to become uh, insignificant, and um, and it just doesn't matter. And you're seeing sport. I mean, I'm watching sports events where kids have the masks. They're not even on. They're just under their chin. So it's almost, why are we doing it? We're just going through the uh, the charades right now. Yep. Well, the, the big recent topic, of course, is Omicron. That's the new variant that came out of South Africa. Uh, 
it, it was discovered and announced on a Thursday, I think, within 24 hours on, on Friday. The world was in a panic. I mean, that's Europe freaked out. Travel restrictions were in place. The United States trapped on travel restrictions to South Africa and several other uh, African countries. Headlines all across the country. Um, in fact, here's what, what we know so far, and it's not much. Omicron is a new variant that's very different because it has a large number of mutations in it, larger than previous ones, some 32 or some reports have said 50 mutations. That means it's going to be different. Could be worse, could be better. We don't have the data now, however, to say whether it's worse, worse in the sense of being more fatal, more infectious, uh, uh, causes worse symptoms, whether it penetrates vaccines better. Uh, nevertheless, they jumped to put these restrictions on in place on the assumption that uh, the variations are going to turn out for the worst. But in fact, we don't know that yet. Uh, the, the preliminary evidence, and this is preliminary, don't hold anybody to this, but you know, in South Africa, they said, wait a minute, what are you doing? Uh, our observation of this is that it's a very mild form of the virus and that nobody's getting very sick um, of it. And the woman, in fact, that, that first announced the discovery of the, the, of the variant said she was shocked to see the level of alarm that followed after her uh, announcement. And she published an article to that effect. By the way, we're publishing, we're linking some of these relevant articles along with this podcast, you can take a look at these if you're interested in the details. But Ted, Ted what was your reaction to, and what's your thought about the the new level of alarm from Omicron? Well, you know, I, I think the big problem that we've had with governments and the reaction to COVID is that you know, in, in many cases, is an overreaction. It's an over overstep, too much controls, uh, and you know, one of the fundamental things we've learned about COVID is that. You can line up all the different responses from strict to not strict to, you know, crazy, as some people might say, to whatever. You know, just, you have all the, the gradient of how, how governments have reacted, and you really can't find a correlation between an action and the actual out outcomes. You find all kinds of, um, you know, rules that don't work. So nobody's really sure what works to begin with. And certainly uh, the lockdowns and the strict, strict actions probably haven't worked at all. Uh, and so when you come out with a new a new variant, um, you would have hoped that the, the science, let's call it, right, because that's the science, you would say that, you know, you can't find a good correlation. So your your action should be aligned with, you know, kind of waiting to hear what, what or waiting to understand what's really there. And instead, we have this overreaction, way too strict, uh, immediate panic. And, you know, and that's what the public's tired of. At least half of the public is tired of it. You know, I think half of the public is scared and they react and they they respond to governments doing that. But the other half is like, what the hell? Are you going to react this way again? Um, and, you know, it's just it could be and especially if it turns out to be very like you said, if it turns out to be not that um, damaging, then it's going to be one more you know, notch in the lack of trust in governments that we've seen you know, over over the last year and a half. Yeah, and, and this one, I, I salute uh, both the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago because they they had a, a muted response to it. They said, this is a concern that we want to watch, but it was not nearly as alarmist as we heard from the federal government and from all those uh, federal, uh, all, all those foreign nations. Um, so 
you know, hopefully they'll stick to that. Uh, but, you know, the particular point, Ted, that you were, were making is exactly right. The rest of the world has just knee-jerkedly reverted to the same things they've tried before that haven't worked, namely those, those, those lockdown things. And this is, this is now a topic where the studies are overwhelmingly um, against the efficacy of the initial collection of lockdown and, and mitigation strategies that countries used. Uh, I encourage readers to look at the Brownstone Institute for, let's call them dissident views on this, but they have a wonderful article that's posted. Again, we're, we'll link this along with this podcast of showing 400 studies on the failure of various compulsory COVID mitigation strategies. Uh, you know, this has been looked at many times over and, you know, you'll you can find the same thing within the United States. You look at some states that have had very strict lockdown policies uh, that have had good results or bad results, and some states that have been very lax that some of those have had good results and bad results. There's just no rhyme or reason to it, and it's very difficult to put put it together what's, what's causing it, but we know that it's not the traditional uh, methods that uh, many governments has been using. Nevertheless, you know, we, we lurched back to it. And at the federal level, you know, this has been a two-trick pony from the start, vaccines and masks. That's all they want to talk about. And uh, that's all they're talking about still. And I guess we're stuck with that, at least from the federal government. But I am glad that the state of Illinois and Chicago are being a little more cautious this time. Well, let me let me just add a pessimist view on that one, Mark. Um, you know, I've, I've noted that... And, you know, you've you've seen the the, the effects of the, of the Virginia elections, and the you know the parents want more control over their schools and things like that, and and we are hitting campaign season, and, you know, and Governor Pritzker has had the most strict, if, if well, let's call it one of the strictest in the in the country, controls over schools, over over lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. So um, sometimes I'm wondering whether he's being um, a little smarter about not being alarmist about uh, the new variant, or is he being more political because he's saying, well, you know, I got to start. It's election time in a year, and I've got to start, you know, being on the side of people. So, uh, you know, and and that said, you know, just to flip back to, to to the Brownstone group that you've mentioned, you know, it's fascinating that it takes a group like that to have to to put together all that stuff, which is, I think, natural for what what would normally be natural in a in a good debate over something very complex. But, uh, you know, um, it, it, right now it's it's an outlier thing that Brownstone's doing, you know, having to try to scream loudly. To bring up all these studies that show um, the failures, a lot of things that have gone on when when that should have been more natural in a in a, a natural part of the debate, I would say. Yeah, absolutely, and you have to dig for this. I mean, the average person reading regular news isn't going to see any of this, but there's a lot of contrary scientific opinion out there, and that's why the Brownstone Group was formed. Um, you know, Ted, from from the start, we've kind of favored. It looked to us that the more sensible scientists out there were people like. Uh, 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 Professor Professor Bacharaya at uh, Stanford. Um, he's one of the principals behind the uh, Brownstone uh, uh, Institute of Professor Macquarie at Johns Hopkins, mm -hmm. um, the other founders of Brownstone. Um, their work is all collected there. And, you know, again, let's call them the dissidents, but these are not, these are not flakes. And they, they document uh, what they, uh, 
you know, their, their opinions with their scientific studies and everything else. Um, but the average person, I mean, just, just recently, Twitter has now banned the American Heart Association because they made criticisms of the vaccine. Well, actually, it wasn't even a criticism. All they did is post their data on the heart disease risk from the vaccine. That gets them banned from Twitter. I mean, this is a very dangerous situation we have. And Twitter's not alone. Facebook does the same thing. Much of the mainstream media does it. The coverage of this is, you know, sloppy at best and rigged at worst. Uh, and the public is in the dark about it. Uh, and boy, I, again, you know, we're, we're cautious about expressing opinions. But I'll tell you one thing that I have, have no hesitation saying. Do not trust what comes from the Center for Disease Control alone. It's not that they're always wrong. I look at their stuff and it's valuable. Some of it seems to be consistent with what other people are saying, uh, but they've too often um, suppressed topics, distorted them, uh, not collected the right information, and sometimes just expressed outright silly opinions like that 80% efficacy claim on, on mass. Uh, that's my view at least. Well, I, I, I share the view with you and it's, it's, it's across the board. It, it's, it's sad that there's not a, a really, really, really good data portal that, um, that captures all this data and publishes it in a, in a good way that, that uh, a lot of smart people can grab and, and we can just have good scientific debate and good data debate. But, um, but you're right. I, I think in, in the end, it's just, I think what we're learning in, the, in today's world is, is healthy skepticism. And again, I say healthy skepticism uh, and, and good analytical thinking. And, and maybe just a little bit of open-mindedness and reason um, and, and be willing to look at both sides so you can hear is, is key now. And, and you're seeing places like CDC just too, too politicized. And that, that's the problem is many places are just too politicized or too scared. Now, yep. Now, on another topic, the, under, the ground underneath the whole debate has really gone through a fundamental shift which hasn't really been talked about openly too much. Again, if you've been following this closely, you have noticed it. Uh, but it's a shift even for those dissidents that we like, uh, and that's on the, the subject of herd immunity. That was kind of a dirty term among some people, but it was recognized by all sides. And, you know, it's fundamental in virology, apparently, as being the end game, not as a policy, but just something that ends pandemics. You know, eventually the virus runs out of places to go because people are either vaccinated or they've developed natural Im immunity from having a, a, a prior disease. So the debate has been about how strong natural immunity is, how strong the, the, uh, uh, you know, the virus would be. But all sides are now recognizing that this isn't going to go away. That's because we now know that the, the vaccine um, while it's quite effective at reducing the severity of the disease, does not prevent infections. And even if people get boosters, there's going to be holes. People are going to get sick. Uh, we're going to talk about the breakthrough numbers in a bit. Um, and natural immunity is not perfect either. Some people who have had the disease before nevertheless get sick again. Uh, so I, this is illustrated beautifully by a uh, Oxford virologist named Sunetra Gupta, and she has a very simple video up, again, we're linking it for you, um, showing that this is, uh, that there's sort of a base level of virus that's always going to be out there. Now, why is this important? Well, 
again, you, you, you still have many people saying either, you know, we, we, we need everybody to get vaccinated in order to reach shooter immunity, and that's going to knock out the disease. Uh, most famously, Jim Cramer, the financial guy on national television, uh, he got a lot of controversy because he called for national mandatory vaccinations imposed by the military. His thinking was, he said, that that'll get us to herd immunity. It'll knock out the disease. Well, he's behind the times on that. He was thinking in terms of human immunity. And by the way, we're guilty of this too, I think, Ted. When we first start writing about, it, writing about this, everybody, including all the dissidents, had in the back of their minds that herd immunity was an outcome, not a policy, but an outcome that one way or another you're going to get to. And uh, it turns out that that's not the case here. Uh, so that really does change things. And we're now looking at a situation where we got some level of, of disease that's going to be out there. And Ted, uh, one very interesting aspect of this that contributes to that, that conclusion is this. Um, Back in July, Ted, you might remember, just as kind of a curiosity, we put up a, a piece uh, from a study that found that 40% uh, of the deer in, in Illinois and northern Midwest had the virus. Well, you know, we, we didn't comment on it, and I thought it was pretty obvious that the implication was that animals have this stuff. Well, now people are talking about it openly. Nobody did then. But there's a, a huge reservoir of the virus, as it's called. That's how they refer to it, an animal reservoir of the virus that's out there. And mutations occur within that animal population. New reports say the deer population, 80% of them have antibodies. They, they apparently don't get die from it. They, they carry the disease. They get sick with it. But it's all over the animal world. The CDC has had a piece up for a long time saying this, but they never expanded on the implications. It's buried. It uh, needs more study, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but again, the point is that the virus isn't going to go away. And this notion that everybody getting vaccinated or everybody getting natural immunity is going to suppress the potential for it to, uh, to mutate because where there won't be a pool of people anymore for it to mutate. Not true, because it's going to be out there in the animal population mutating. And by the way, there's a new piece coming out of South Africa where an expert there says it's possible, not certain, but possible that this new Omicron variant came out of the animal world there. Um, Ted, we still love our dogs. Dogs don't have anything to do with this. Don't get mad at your dog. Um, well, we are going to mandate uh, vaccines for dogs though. So, well, <laughs> no, you know, you know, I, I do remember Mark, when you, when you showed me that uh, deer piece, I was like, you know, Mark, are you going crazy? Let's not post this. Because it was just, you know, it was out of there, out, you know, and, and uh, yeah, here you go. Like you're saying, it's it's becoming pretty obvious. And, uh, you know, the big concern is all the rodents that can, can carry it. Um, but, you know, I, th I think what's interesting, I, I go back to the, you know, back to the when we first started COVID and the, the we had the 15 days, 15 days till we could flatten the curve. Um, you know, and, and I think if you saw a lot of the, the graphics and, and a lot of the data that was out there then, it was always about. You know, we're never going to get rid of this thing. Everybody's going to get it eventually in some form. Um, you know, the, the best we could do is try to control it. And and I think we've, we've come back to that in some way, right, that, you know, it's not going away. And uh, certainly with with the people who are vaccinated and who are getting the um, the uh, virus again, we're finding out that, it, yeah, it hasn't gone away. And that vaccination itself 
you know, hopefully will help us control serious illness and death, but it's certainly not going to keep, keep this thing at bay, at least not yet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the evidence continues to come in that, uh, the vaccinated population does spread the disease as much as the unvaxxed population, maybe not, but the evidence gets stronger and stronger that a lot of people who are vaccinated, uh, spread the disease. Um, you know, in fact, that uh, Dr. Betcharia, who I mentioned from uh, Stanford, is among several who have said, you know, look, the, the value of the vaccine for that reason in the United States is a whole lot less than it, than it could achieve elsewhere in the world where it could really save lives, uh, a lot of lives from, from people who are highly at risk who haven't gotten the vaccine. Uh, so he seems to be in favor of uh, spreading what's still a limited uh, amount of vaccines that we have more um, smartly around the world. Yeah, that's that's something that didn't get any attention, Mark. And uh, you know, when we talked about children earlier and their their lack of risk uh, to to COVID, certainly for for ser- serious illness and death. I mean, imagine imagine all that vaccination going to, to well, Africa. What are the numbers there? I think uh, I think if I remember right, uh, for the entire continent, is something. W- am I right if I say twelve percent? It's it's a really low number. Um, so to the extent that that vaccination could occur, especially for the elderly uh, in, in other parts of the world, certainly the, the poor parts of the world, that, that, that would have made a lot of sense. Yep. Uh, let, let's turn to those breakthrough numbers. Uh, again, that, that's the breakthroughs or cases where a vaccinated person nevertheless gets COVID, get, gets the infection and gets sick. Uh, and it's a reported case. Uh, you know, strangely, again, the CDC still does not collect any valuable information on this. No excuse why. They should have this in detail, sliced and diced in all kinds of ways to tell us what's happening. Uh, but some states have. And uh, Illinois is one that, that gives us weekly numbers. We publish them. Most of the press ignores this in Illinois, but they come out every Wednesday. And when we update our daily report, um, we include, as you'll see in the first box there, the, the weekly numbers on the number of COVID deaths in Illinois. And they're significant. Uh, they're, they, you know, they range from oh, 25 or 30 up to 70 or 90 per week. Um, and, uh, you know, you can make what you want, whether that's high or low, it's significant. It certainly tells us that uh, the vaccine is not is far from perfect and is not what we had hoped it would be when the numbers first came out. But what's also curious about this, Ted, is um, it's only a few states that collect these numbers and report them. But if when you research this topic, you'll find lots of articles in Minnesota and Massachusetts. Uh, for some reason, their their press feels comfortable talking about this. So almost every day you can find some commentary or new article about the breakthrough numbers in those states. Uh, the state state collects them and publish them. The press reports them. In Illinois, you just you almost never see anything about these breakthrough numbers. Um, I don't know if the press is afraid that they're spreading some bad information about the vaccine. I mean, Ted, you got any uh, any thought about why they wouldn't at least report the state's own numbers on this? No, I, I don't know why, um, Mark, other than 
you know, they, 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 they do a pretty good job of keeping these kind of things out. And there's, there's not many reporters that will, will push, uh, you know, push the buttons and, and, and challenge Pritzker on all these things. And, you know, and they should. And like you say, you know, it's, it's, you know, we're talking about, I'm just looking at the numbers now on our, on our site. And, you know, you're talking about breakthrough deaths anywhere from, you know, 35 deaths in a week to, to 90 deaths in a week. So they're, you know, they're still significant numbers. Uh, they might range anywhere from nearly 50% of the deaths in, in a given week to, to, you know, 20%. So they're not trivial. And I think, you know, the, the reason for asking questions is, again, is not to, not to beat up on the administration, but just to understand more, you know, how many of these breakthrough deaths are from the elderly with comorbidities? Because that, that would tell us a lot, right? Um, versus a, a breakthrough death of a young person who's, who's healthy. Right. Well, the, the, the second example is very scary for, you know, for, for, for people if that were true versus, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say it's more understandable, but it's more understandable if that that person was a breakthrough who was, you know, 80 years old and, and, and um, you know, had heart disease. So there, there's a lot more data that should be out there. And, and like you say, the CDC should be collecting this and, and turning into a new data set of, of us understanding who, who is exactly at risk. Who who are we who are we fearful for? Uh, who should have more protection? You know, it come, comes all the way back to the beginning of, of of COVID when we said that we should protect the elderly and the comorbid and and uh, you know give most of the most of the rest of the people you know the, the freedom to to not be masked et cetera or or you know be in school. So we need that data, and it's it's sad because the breakthroughs I think do matter, and and maybe they don't matter as much right now, but they may matter later, we, especially as as we see the vaccines lose their efficacy over time and things like that. So we need more. Yeah, we, we need to ask questions. We, we need to not suppress the dissident voices. Um, we need to sort out conflicting opinions and data. That's that's what science is about. And all this is against the background of what did get that national attention, fortunately, is, um, you know, I, I think one of the most astonishing infuriating things I've seen in this whole con controversy was Anthony Fauci going on national television and saying, I represent science. When you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with science. I mean, what an appallingly arrogant, presumptuous thing to say, especially from somebody who's been repeatedly wrong so many times as he has. Um, but, you know, think about it. The truth is that he's really no different than the people with the science lives here, signs in their yards. Or Governor Pritzker, who says, you know, we, we follow the science. Well, no, you're, you're picking and choosing what science you're following. Um, you're rigging the narrative to support the policies that you want, which clearly the CDC tries to do and Pritzker has tried to do. That's not science. And uh uh, if you if you want to get science, you better ask questions. You sure as hell better not trust the government on anything. If it's anything we've learned um, in a thousand years of two thousand years of democracy, is that even in a strong democracy, you better ask questions uh, because if you let them get away with lying or errors, it's going to continue. Uh, that's all we try to do here, and we're trying to make sense out of uh, conflicting stories. Uh, conflicting information and get to the best, most efficient way of getting this uh, virus under control. Ted, you got anything else to add? Well, I just, um, 
just wanted to add that that's you know one of the reasons why we started taking as much of the data as we could and 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 again it's it's not easy but at wirepoints we started putting that data on a on our own site and making sure that it was visible in the way that it should be visible sometimes sometimes the data is out there in the in the public uh, but it's not either consumable or it's confusing or maybe it's even purposely confusing so we did our best to try to 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 make it consumable and, and you know if you guys have any comments on it let us know if you have any challenges let us know uh, we're welcome to all those because we're always trying to improve what we do so uh, with that that's all i've got we will talk to you next time on the dialogue thanks for joining us